Good morning. How are you? Doing well? Got your shopping done? If you, if you got your shopping done, say amen. You got your gifts all wrapped, say amen. Oh, not bad. My Kumro's over there laughing, shaking his head. Not going well at the Kumro house at the moment. All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We've been looking at this passage the past few weeks. Pastor uh, Bond has been speaking on it. I want to also talk on Luke 2. If you're all there, say I'm there. All right, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. says, Now there were in this same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad tidings, or good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, or cloths, excuse me, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We uh, pray that you would illuminate us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for his presence here today uh, in our midst as well as in the hearts of those of us that have received your son Jesus. Bless the word to our souls, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So I want to focus on verse 11. The angel says he has good news or glad tidings. And he says, these are the glad tidings. Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice these three terms. There's three terms, titles, names here applied to Jesus. And they are first, Savior. Secondly, Christ. And then third, Lord. So those are my three points. Pretty simple, right? Savior, Christ, Lord. Can you say that with me? Savior, Christ, Lord. Now you won't forget the outline of my sermon. The good news is about a person. His personal name is Jesus, but he's also called the Savior. This describes his mission, his mission in the world, why he came. Jesus came, as the angel said in Matthew, Jesus came to save his people from their... We can do better than that. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. Thank you. That's not in the text, but I like it. It's good. So I had a young man tell me uh, a few years ago, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He says, because you talk about sin. I said, sorry, it's in the Bible. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. You're talking about sin again. There you go. Jesus came to save us from sin, who means from the Penalty of sin, the power of sin, and also from the very presence of sin. Jesus saves us from our past sin. When we come to Jesus, every one of our sins is forgiven. Every one. 
This means that we are justified in the sight of God. We are made right with Him through Jesus Christ. This is good news, amen? amen. And this deals with the problem of guilt or the problem of, <clears throat> excuse me, of condemnation before God, that which keeps us out of His presence and, and, and away from ultimately being in heaven with Him. Jesus solves that problem, but He also solves the problem of sin in the present. Not only does He save us from our past sin, He saves us from our present sin. Now, when we think of the gospel, we focus pretty much on the past part, on the guilt part, on the, on the forgiveness part. And we forget that the good news of salvation, the glad tidings or the good tidings that, that the angel declared here is that Jesus saves, is a Savior, and that means He saves us from the very power of sin. Hallelujah. All right, the Hallelujah Chorus over there. We'll call it the Hallelujah Corner in the back. From the power of sin, he grants us people his Holy Spirit, and through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit works in us the righteousness of the law, it says in Romans 8.4. So we are set free from the law of sin and death. Wait, that's hallelujah. If I want amen, I'll say amen. Okay, let's practice. Ready? Amen? amen. All right, very good. All right, you guys are awake. I like it. Jesus saves from the penalty of sin. He saves from the power of sin. And Jesus saves ultimately from the very presence of sin when we get to heaven. When we arrive in heaven, we're told that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because there will be no source or cause of suffering when we are in heaven. Because sin will be removed. You know, the thing that, that's bringing you pain in your life... It isn't your spouse, it isn't your kids, it isn't your boss, it isn't your situation. The real root of sorrow in the world is sin. And when sin is removed, then sorrow is removed. And so the salvation that Jesus provides is a salvation from the penalty of sin, from the very power of sin, and from the very presence of sin. But he also saves us from the devil. The Word of God tells us that all of us are, are by nature children of wrath, and we are under the, the influence of the, the spirit of the air we know as the devil or Satan. Yet it says that when we come to Jesus Christ, that we are transferred or conveyed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We go from darkness to light. And in, in Colossians 2, we're told that when Jesus hung on the cross, not only did he take our sins upon him, but through his death and ultimately his burial and resurrection, he disarmed principalities and powers. That is, he destroyed the power of the devil through his death and resurrection. So that means that not only does sin have no power over you, the devil has no power over God's children. None whatsoever. Now, I've seen, I've seen Christians in terrible bondage to the devil. Well, how can that happen if he has no authority? It happens because authority is granted to him that he doesn't rightfully have. The devil has no authority over the believer unless you give it to him. And in Romans 4, when it talks about don't let the sun go down on your, on your wrath, on your anger, he says give no place to the devil... Right after he talks about anger, 
that word place is the word that's used for a, like a beachhead. Like if an enemy were attacking, it was like on D-Day when we, we attacked Normandy. We had to get a foothold on the beach. We had to get on the beach to attack the enemy. Don't give him a place on the beach. Don't open the door, because once you let him on the beach, well, then he can defeat you. But he has no authority to get on the beach. And the Word of God says that we are to resist the devil, and he will flee. Submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee. Not he might flee, or he'll think about it. He will flee. Because he must flee, because in the name of Jesus, we have authority over the devil. The name of Jesus, the Savior. But Jesus also saves us not only from sin, not only from death, but he, excuse me, the devil, but he saves us then from death also. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 but Jesus saves us from, first, our spiritual death, separation from God, if you will. And he does this through the new birth. When we are born again, we are given new life. We receive eternal life. And our, our souls, or our spirit, if you will, are then united to Christ. And they are made alive, or they are quickened together with him, is the way Paul describes it. Paul says when Jesus was resurrected, we were quickened together with him. The resurrection power that brought Jesus back from the grave is the same power that quickens your soul. And when you're born again, your soul is resurrected from the dead. Oh, I got both. Whatever you want to say. Praise the Lord. Preach it. Right? So Jesus delivers us from spiritual death, but he also saves us from physical death. Now, in this life, we may die. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we will physically die. But we have the promise of the resurrection. We know that our mortal bodies will be buried, but they will be raised immortal. And so we will live forever with the Lord, not only spiritually, but we will, we will live with the Lord forever in a body, in our human body, which has been renewed and has been glorified. Jesus saves his people to the uttermost. Amen? Amen. Fully, completely, comprehensively, totally, Jesus saves his people. And that's why the angel said, I have good news. Good news. But notice that Jesus is not only called a savior in this text, he is called Christ. Verse 11 again, let's look at it. For there is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now we use the word Christ all the time. We talk about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, right? This, this word Christ is derived from the Greek word creo, which means, simply means to anoint. And it was uh, particularly used to, to anoint by way of instituting someone to a dignity or to a function or to a privilege. The oil in the ceremony of anointing in the Old Testament was fragrant and it was costly. And this oil symbolized either important functions that the person was going to do or the valuable qualifications 
that were symbolically bestowed upon the person through the oil. Now, ultimately, we know that the oil represents the Holy Spirit, right? The anointing of God's Spirit. And we're told in John 3 that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. Without measure. See, the anointing was applied to three classes of persons in the Scripture. To prophets, to priests, and to kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying Jesus is the anointed one. We're really saying that Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. That's what we're saying. First of all, Jesus was a prophet. The prophet in Scripture is a person who has familiar and intimate conversation with God. A, a prophet is someone who knows the mind of God. And then knowing and discerning the mind of God, they then turn from God to the people and they declare to the people the will and the mind of God. That was the main function of a prophet. It wasn't to foretell the future, although they often did, because when they spoke the will of God, they said, if you obey, good things will happen, right? And if you don't obey, bad things will happen. So they address the future, but it's often in the context of a present obedience, a present message from the mind of God to the mind of his people, given through the prophet who was able to discern the mind and will of God. And we know in Scripture that Jesus was the prophet who was prophesied who would be like unto Moses, the new lawgiver and the new leader of God's people. <clears throat> We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father and that Jesus has declared, my version, or revealed the Father. The word is where we get the word exegete, expounded the Father to us. Jesus knows the Father intimately and thus he is uh, supremely qualified to tell us what the Father is like. Not because he is the Father, but because he knows the Father. And look at Matthew, we're going to come back to, to look, look at Matthew 11. we just look at a couple other scriptures. In Matthew 11, so where Jesus invites people to come to him. But before he invites them to come, he says this. In verse 27, all things, 11, 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the Son is the one that is the revealer or the declarer of the person of the Father. Because he was in the bosom of the Father, knows the Father and is able to declare the mind, heart, and will of the Father to his people. Thus, he is the prophet of God in that sense. That's his prophetic office, to, to teach God's people the mind of God. But he's also a priest. The function of the priest was different. The function of the priest was primary, a, 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 whereas the, the, the prophet often focused on the people, the priest primarily focused on God. And his role was to propitiate God, that is, to, to provide offerings and sacrifices to God to uh, appease his holy 
wrath, and also to intercede for the people. So when you read the Old Testament, there's an entire sacrificial system that is set up, which, of course, as Christians, we don't need to observe. However, there's much to learn from it as we study it. Because what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus is not only a priest, Jesus is our high priest. Our high priest. And in the Old Testament economy, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would there sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and this would appease the wrath of God for one more year. So he had access to God, but he went into the presence of God for the benefit of God's people to make an offering for sin. Well, what does the Bible tell us? Not only that Jesus is our high priest, but that Jesus is the offering. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, we learn... uh, This is the main book that teaches about the the priesthood of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, verse 17, Therefore, talking about that Jesus took upon himself our human nature, that's the context. He says, Therefore, in all things, he he had to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Look at chapter 7 of Hebrews. We'll start in verse 23. Also, there were many priests, talking about the Old Testament economy, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, meaning in their office as a priest. But he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Notice, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for their own sins and then for the the people's. For this he did, listen, this Jesus did, he offered up a sacrifice for sin once for all when he offered up himself. Both priest and beast. Both priest and sacrifice. Both priest and offering. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, meaning God's promise, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Forever. So in his role as the priest, Jesus propitiates our sins through his death. He ascended into heaven in the presence of God and offered there 
himself, meaning his own blood. And of course, the Old Testament economy with the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, this was symbolic of the future work of Christ that was to take place. The work which, from our perspective, is now the past work. The finished work. Finished work. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. That is to say, Jesus continues now, daily, now, to intercede for his church and for his people. And so when we sin now, we're told that he, if, we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because his blood continues to avail. If we, had, if, if we sin and had to get saved again, you know what that means? Jesus would have to die again. It means the blood of Jesus did not cover that sin. So we must, he must die again. But no, his blood avails for all sins for all time. He made a sacrifice once for all when he presented himself to the Father. So in his intercession for his people, as we confess our sins, he continually offers not a different sacrifice, but the same sacrifice. He continues to lay before the Father his own blood. And it covers his people. Amen? But thirdly, Jesus is a king. And the king's role in the Old Testament was to shepherd God's people and to protect God's people from their enemies by leading them into battle. You know, we all know that story about David when he messed up, right? Like, people know a few stories in the Bible. They know, you know, they know about Jonah and the whale because they think that's hilarious and knowing the ark. And, but they all know about David messing up. Well, David, it, it makes a point of saying in the text that it was the season when kings go to battle. Well, David was the king, but he wasn't going to battle, was he? And that was really the root problem of his downfall, is that he had neglected his calling to shepherd God's people and to lead them into battle. He should have been out in front battling God's enemies, but he was back home, falling into sin. So the king's role was to be a shepherd and a guardian of God's people. And of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. Amen? In John chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there with me, Jesus tells us what a good shepherd is like. He says in verse 10, the thief, the thief comes, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. And does not care about the sheep. In other words, the hirelings doing what hirelings do. They don't really care. They're just doing it for, to make some money. Just a job. They're not true shepherds at heart. 
He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus was doing battle for his people. That's what was happening. He was fighting the principalities and the powers. He was fighting sin. He was fighting death. And as he went to the cross, he was going as a prophet, as a priest, earn offering, but as a king also, leading his people into battle, which is why it says in Colossians that on the cross he disarmed principalities and powers. On the cross, Jesus defeated the enemies of God's people. Pretty awesome, isn't it? And we're told in 1 Peter that through the work of Jesus, we are, we are returned or brought back to the shepherd and the, the overseer of our souls, and that's Jesus. So Jesus is the good shepherd. <clears throat> when you read Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in the scripture, it's really talking about Jesus, the Lord Jesus. First, yes, it applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament as a shepherd of Israel, but it applies now to Jesus as the shepherd of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. So Jesus is the shepherd of God's people, and he does battle for them. Revelation 19 tells us about the final battle. Let's read it together. In Revelation chapter 19... We see the glorified Jesus waging war for his people. In Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Do you know who that army is? The angels and God's redeemed people. His redeemed people that are already in heaven are going to return with him and do battle. Man, wouldn't you like to be part of that army? Yes. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is not only the King of the world, Jesus is our King. And Jesus does battle for his people. And we are assured of final victory against all the powers of darkness because of King Jesus. King Jesus. You can clap for Jesus. 
My concluding point. Remember, we said Jesus was a Savior. He was called the Christ or Christ. He's also called the Lord. Here he's called the Lord of Lords. The term Lord refers primarily to his person. Savior talks about his mission. Christ talks about his office. And the Lord refers to his person. The surety of our salvation rests in the person of Christ, who is the Lord. That is, not only the King, which he is, because we are told in Scripture that Jesus Christ is even now presently seated on the right hand of the Father, even now. And that even now, the world is being governed by the hand of Jesus Christ. And he's governing the world now through his providence for the benefit of his people and the glory of his Father. Those are the two main things that God is doing, Jesus is doing in the world. So, you know, in the chaos of the world, so often you cannot see the hand of Christ. But the word of God assures us that he governs for the good of his people, his sheep, and for the glory of his Father. We're told that for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? But this is not like karma. This isn't an impersonal law of the universe. Well, it, things just happen to work for good. Because as some versions say, God works all things together for good. In other words, the universe is a personal universe. And God is governing it through his son, Jesus Christ, who's now at his right hand on his throne. Jesus Christ is the, his, his person as the Lord is the guarantee of the success of his mission and the fulfillment of his offices as Christ. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, he's God the Son. That is to say, Jesus is the second person of the blessed trinity. Jesus was, is, was, is, both, and will be perfect man, but also perfect God. Look at John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, which was written specifically to teach God's people the deity of Jesus Christ. That he was, although he was a man, he was not a mere man. It's not good enough to even say Jesus was a perfect man. Although the Bible tells us he was harmless, right? And he was undefiled. He was without sin. But he's more than a perfect man. He is also perfect God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice here that this word or logos, we, now we know from verse 14 who it is, right? 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, of, the, word the logos here, he's talking about Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Before he became Jesus of Nazareth, he was the word dwelling with the Father for all eternity. But he says, he, notice this, 
Not only was he, in verse 1, not only was he with God, he was God. So what we have here is the distinction of persons, but the unity of nature, their nature. One nature, one divine nature between father and son, but two distinct persons. Yes, I understand you can't understand it. Because nobody can. We're talking about a being beyond our comprehension, ultimately. But we believe what's revealed. So we're told here that the word was with the father. This word, uh, with, this preposition can mean the word was toward the father. The word was facing the father. I love that, that idea, right? Of the son facing the father. The father and the son facing one another in relationship in community, in fellowship. But he was also a distinct person from the Father. Jesus Christ is not a, simply a manifestation of the Father. It's not as if there's one God with three different masks. That is known as modalism. But actually, there's one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarianism. And there's much confusion on that. Of course, whole sermon could give whole sermons on that. The point, rather, is this. That the good news is that the person born in Bethlehem was the Savior, he was the Christ, and he was the Lord. And here, I believe the term Lord means not just the King, but rather the the Lord, God. Because as we're also told in Matthew, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. So Jesus is perfect man and perfect God, therefore his work as Savior is perfect. Therefore his Work as Messiah or Christ is perfect. Therefore, his work as king is perfect. And that's why the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Because they understood who this majestic person was that was being born there in Mary's womb. Go back to Luke and we'll conclude. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 15, let's see the response of the shepherds. And it says, and so it was in verse 15, Luke 2, 15. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into the heavens that the shepherds said, let's go get a drink. Nope. Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. Now, it's striking here. They don't say, let's see if this thing has come to pass. Do they? They, The angels told them something that was unbelievable, and what did they do? They believed it. Because it says, let's go see this thing that has come to pass. The angel said, there will be a babe born, he will be the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, and they believed it. That's the appropriate response to the good news. Faith. Faith. If if you are a skeptic and you are demanding evidence, 
you will never have enough evidence. You know why? Because the problem is not intellectual, it's moral. The problem is the disposition of the heart. It is the unwillingness to believe. Any argument that is given, any evidence that is given, will not confirm someone if they are determined not to believe. Because belief is not simply an intellectual matter. It is a matter of the will. And when it comes to faith, there's only one, there's only one way to know if, if, if Jesus Christ is truly the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. There's only one way to know. And that is to believe. You know, Pascal, the famous French philosopher, uh, said that it's called Pascal's Wager. Basically, what have you got to lose by believing in Christ? Because if you're wrong, let's say you, you, you quote, believe in Jesus, and then at the end of your life you find out, well, it wasn't true. What have you really lost? But if you don't believe and what the Scripture says is true, what you've lost is your soul. And you've lost it forever. There are, there are truths that you cannot see until you enter the wardrobe. You must go into the wardrobe by faith and you will come out in Narnia. It's true. I know you can't believe there's such a magical kingdom. But if you will go in the wardrobe through faith, you will come out in Narnia. And there's no other way. Now, I'm not, I'm not anti-intellectual. Go in my office and, trust me, read some of the books in there. They'll blow your mind. You come out, your brain will be melting out of your ears. It's true. Christianity, true Christianity is not anti-intellectual. But there is a limit in, in every great mind in the West, that's, whether it's Augustine or Aquinas or, or any of the great uh, Christian theologians and philosophers, they've all said this, there is, a, there is a limit to what reason can do. And it's not that revelation is unreasonable. It is above reason, not against reason. And when you believe, God gives you eyes to see things you never saw before. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. It's right in front of you. But you can't see it because you don't have the right equipment. You don't have the right eyes. You know, I went and got an eye exam the other day. It's like, dude, I'm going blind, you know. I'm driving. I'm driving. I shouldn't be driving with these glasses, I'm telling you. Just warning you, if you see me driving, pull over. So I can't see a th I cannot see a thing. I cannot see a thing. I see a big blur. I say, okay, I'm assuming that's a car coming at me, but I can't see much else. Well, that's how it is when, when you're not in the kingdom. It's a, life is a blur. You don't see things clearly, and I don't mean to insult your intelligence. You'd be much more intelligent than I am. But I'm not talking about simple intellectual things. I'm talking about spiritual realities and spiritual truths. 
And I remember when I got born again, because I was an adult and I was very much in the dark. And when I, when I was born again, I was very much in the light. And it was a new pair of glasses. And it's amazing the things I could see that I could not see before. But it wasn't because I had read a hundred books. It was because I was given a new heart. And that new heart came when I was willing to believe. Willing to believe. Jesus said, if you want to know the truth of his doctrine, what you need, he said, you must will, be willing to believe. You must be willing to do. And that's the root problem. The root problem isn't that there isn't evidence. The root problem is really the implication of faith. And many people don't want certain things in their lives to change. Maybe there's a relationship they don't want to give up or a habit they don't want to give up or, or maybe a status they think they'll lose or who knows. You know, People get weird thoughts like, well, if I trust Jesus, he'll send me to the deepest, darkest place in Africa and I don't want to do that. God gives you a will to do what he wills for you. He gives you a will to do what he wills for you. He works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Everything God requires of us as believers, he grants to us first through grace. Do you hear what I just said? Everything he requires of us, he grants to us first through grace. He calls us to nothing that we are not able to bear. He calls us to nothing that we are not able to do because he gives us the grace to do his will. He is not a hard taskmaster. He's a loving shepherd. So the, the shepherds believed. That's the first lesson. And that is the, the fundamental lesson when you hear the proclamation of the good news to believe. So they went and saw, not, because, not to confirm, well, I'm not sure about this thing. Let's go see if this is really true. That wasn't the attitude. It's let's go see joyfully what has come to pass, a profession of faith. And that's what our attitude needs to be. If you don't know Jesus, well, come and see. And there's only one way to see, and that's to believe, to trust him, to ask him. Maybe you're not at the point where you can say, Jesus, save me, be my Savior, and I believe in you, but you could be at the place where you say, uh, I'm willing to be willing. I'm willing to believe. Help my unbelief. And if that's sincere, then you're on the right path. You're heading toward the wardrobe, but you haven't walked through yet. But at least you're going in the right direction. But also, it says here that after they went and they saw, it says uh, in verse 16, and they came with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made known, my version says they made widely known, the saying which was told them concerning the Christ. So what they did is they, they heard the glad tidings, they believed the tidings, and because they believed, the, the tidings were confirmed, if you will, 
by sight. Their faith was confirmed. They saw. And then what did they do? Then they went to the bar. No. Then they made known what was told them concerning this child. Believe and then share. What a simple message, right? Believe and share. That's what the shepherds did. Guess what? The shepherds did not take a course in evangelism. The shepherds did not take a course in apologetics. The shepherds had no formal training of any kind. The shepherds didn't even know the word apologetics or evangelism or Christianity. What they knew was Jesus. What they knew is they had an encounter which was real. And that's why so often it's the new Christian that's the most effective evangelist because the reality of that encounter with Jesus is so fresh with them. But then we mature Christians get set in our ways and we grow in our head, but we don't grow in our application. We, don't, we, we lose our zeal. And so we don't share. We just take Jesus for granted. The shepherds set a shining example for us of faith and of obedience. Faith and witness, and they go together. The more you truly believe, the more you want to share. You can't really not share. And, and you know, I, I, I know many Christians that are deeply concerned about our society and our culture and what's happening But I'm just going to say this one more time. I've only got a few more sermons left in in the pulpit here. The, The solution is sitting in America's churches. Because the solution is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And what we need in our culture is a revival. We don't need a different president and a different senate and a different Supreme Court. We need a revival. Amen? And it is the gospel that revives. It's the gospel that saves, the gospel that transforms, because the gospel is about Jesus. And when the gospel is preached and believed, people meet Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. And when they meet him, they are changed. And when people are changed, then families get changed, then societies get changed. And we have the gospel. And yet, for 20 years at least, the church in America has not grown. It's flatlined. And it's because the church has ceased to believe its own gospel. The church has ceased to believe in the power of its own Christ. And if the church would be faithful in the proclamation, I mean every church and every Christian, if we'd be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel, faithful, 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 we would see revival. It's true. We have the solution because we know Christ. We know him. And we have his gospel. So let us be like the shepherds Let us believe, but then let us make known what has been revealed to us. Amen? Let's stand and pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made known to many of us the Savior, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And we know, Lord, that this faith is a gift. We thank you that you have revealed him to us. And I pray, Lord, first for any here that may not know your son Jesus, I pray that you might open their eyes. Draw them into the wardrobe and draw them into the kingdom. And I pray, Lord, also for your people, that we would be like the shepherds, that we would believe and speak, that we would be a people who are really like the angels and then like the shepherds who declare the glad tidings. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest because he has given us a Savior, a Christ, who is the Lord. May his gospel be on our lips this Christmas season and really every day. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.